Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Well, I'm sure you've had the emails. The great crash is coming. Buy gold. Safeguard your money from bank collapses. And of course, these emails are written by people who, well, sell gold and earn a commission from selling gold. So an ulterior motive, perhaps. But does that make them wrong? Or is there a better way of protecting yourself from a financial collapse? What can we learn from last time around? And which countries are at risk now? We're going to look at all of those this time on the Debunking Economics podcast. Professor Steve Keen is with us again, of course. After all, it's really his show, isn't it? Uh, So, Steve, um, I'm sure you've had them too. The emails telling you to buy gold. Um, so, so first of all, are they right? Is that a good idea? Because I mean, uh, it, the, you know, you th- the logic, of course, says, look, money's going to become worthless. Uh, gold isn't. Uh, you're safer with gold. Yeah, I mean, this is what I regard gold as. It's a, it's a speculative commodity that does well during periods of financial instability. And if you're expecting financial instability to come your way, then gold will do very nicely. Thanks very much. But uh, but gold bugs actually believe money is gold, and that's where I actually thoroughly enjoy uh, looking at uh, the work of Beppo Grillo before he became a politician back in 1998, because he understands what gold really is. And uh, he made a wonderful comic point. As you can see it, uh, it of course, he's speaking in Italian, but it's got uh, English and German subtitles, uh, a speech he gave in 1998. And he said, what is gold? He says, gold is something you find in the soil, but you've got to pour 500,000 tonnes of waste in to get one kilo, one tonne of gold back out. Um, you know, and then most of that waste is cyanide. So you, you can dig an enormous hole in the ground, and then you take the gold and you put it in another hole in the ground called a bank. He said, why not build the second hole over the first hole and be done with it? Um, so it is just a speculative commodity, but if there is huge financial uh, instability, then gold is going to rise compared to the currency. So it's a good bet that way. The trouble is, I've got a feeling a lot of these people advising you, expecting a, a crunch in uh, England and, and Europe and America and so on. Uh, as we said, there may well be one in America, courtesy of the unexpected impacts of Trump's uh, policies if he follows the advice of the Heritage Foundation. But I don't expect the slump there. I expect the slump to occur in countries like South Korea, China, Australia, Canada, Norway, Belgium and Sweden. Uh, not, not the usual suspects, in other words. Right. But will it spread? Oh, it'll spread because of the number of countries that are facing a credit crunch when you total up their GDPs, of course, including China, you get an aggregate level of GDP larger than America. And of course, that's going to have flow on effects to the rest of the world. So you're going to get a slowdown uh, in the rest of the world because they're relying upon a certain amount of export growth. And that export growth is partly fueled by, by credit growth in the countries which are still booming on credit. When they stop booming on credit, then that export demand will go and therefore there'll be a fall, fall in demand. But it's just it'll, it'll make a stagnation worse. It won't be the same sort of stuff of crises as you got back when Lehman Brothers collapsed. And that's what most of those people sending those emails are expecting. Right. Because, I mean, because, you know, we look at Cyprus, for example, and this is where the fear factor kicks in, uh, where people with money in the bank were, you know, had were levied basically by 47.5%. You know, you lose almost half your savings. And so you weren't in, you know, there's an interesting situation where those people who saved are the ones who were penalised. 
Absolutely. And this is the insanity of letting neoclassical economists run banking systems when they don't know the first thing about money to begin with. That was that, that I, I would just call that a, a suicide note, the whole idea of forcing depositors to share part of the loss of a bank. You know, that, that's that's just saying, why don't we recreate the Great Depression? Wasn't that a fantastic experience? Let's let's pull uh, more money out of the economy, in other words. That's what they yeah, were saying, wasn't uh, it? In, insane. I mean, people, when you're putting your money in a, in a, in a bank account, you are not investing in the bank. Okay, if you buy shares, yes, you're investing in the bank, uh, and therefore people taking an equity position, uh, if you, they, they they should be exposed to risk of the bank's behaviour. If you buy bonds off a bank, you're investing in the bank. If you put your money in a deposit account, you're expected to be safe, and there's every reason to to to, to trust that uh, institution. If you don't have trust in the banks, then the financial system system collapses because people will want to withdraw their money, and there simply isn't that much paper on the planet. Uh, with most of our money, about, no, about 90, 95% of the money is in the form of bank entries, bank accounts. And if you make that vulnerable uh, by saying we're going to you know, garnish 40% of that in any downturn, then people are going to try to make their money out of the system and it will not be able to cope. Yeah. So it's it's just insane. Uh, you know, another byproduct of letting people with a bad theory run the real world. So, or, or they buy gold, or they put the money under the mattress, which is the old way of doing things, of course. But, which slows down the circulation, yeah. Yeah, both cases, that's right. I mean, the money's not circulating. So, so the next financial crisis then, are we going to have another banking collapse like we did or not? Not in uh, America and England, uh, and maybe we're likely to have in one Australia? in Europe because the obvious cause of a financial crisis in Europe is going to be one of the European uh, victims of the euro leaving the euro, and then, of course, all the debts denominated in euro become worthless uh, or certainly challenged. So there'll, there'll be financial crises with European banks, fairly, I'm fairly certain about that. But the Americans, the British, the Japanese, uh, they've all been through their crises with their banks and they're not the ones where the, the banks are lending enormous amounts of money again right now. That's happening in Australia, Canada, uh, um, South Korea, Belgium, uh, which is now another European country as well, but independent of that, it's got a, a credit bubble going on. So those are the countries where banks are likely to fail. So I, I'd expect uh, a bank failure in Australia, uh, which of course the government's likely to try to rescue the bank in its usual fashion, but we might go from four banks down there to three. Um, ditto in Canada, ditto in South Korea. They're the ones I'd be looking for. Right, but if that's uh, why is it that the government does the bailout? Isn't that the job of the uh, of, of the Reserve Bank? Well, the, it depends on who the regulations are set up by. If you look at Australia's situation, they've broken the uh, financial the monetary policy into the RBA and the so-called management of the banks into the Australian Prudential Regulation Authority. So. Uh, it's if it's a, a thing like an APRA, then it's a government uh, body, and therefore the government comes in and does the bailout. And also, in that sense, uh, the, the reserve banks are normally a fully owned subsidiary of the treasury in every country they operate in. So, when the treasury comes in to do something like uh, bail out a bank, then the the reserve bank just of the country simply provides the funds. It doesn't have the right to ask any questions about that. So let's look at this Australia because it is an interesting situation, isn't it? Because it is so heavily leveraged. So right. step by step, what's going to happen? I, mean, I guess it's going to be the same in Canada and the other countries you mentioned. Step by step, what's what's the process going to be? Well, the real trigger is just a slowdown in the rate of growth of, mor- of mortgage credit. That's the actual beginning of all, all this uh, crisis because um, 
the, the whole thing is linked to house prices in an obvi- obvious way. Yeah. And people always think, well, if it rises unemployment, then house prices will fall. It's actually the other way around. If house prices start going off the boil, then unemployment rises. And that's because demand for credit for housing pumps a huge amount of money into the economy. That's that's where most of the private money money growth comes from. And that's what actually drives up house prices. Now, if you get to the stage where people are reaching saturation levels of debt, then the growth in, in mortgage credit slows down, and that actually causes house prices to fall. And a combination of the two, you then have a decline in economic activity and unemployment rises, which then, of course, feeds back into the house prices. So it's, it's simply a slowdown in the rate of growth of credit. It's already turning up on the Australian data. Um, not, uh, I think a bit in the Canadian data. I know the Australian data better for obvious reasons. Uh, so that slowdown has begun. And the same thing applied in America. The, the, the crisis in America uh, began, was, was manifest in 2007, but again in, in 2006, so that's when the rate of growth of mortgage credit started to plunge. And that's the trigger. So I've got a feeling it's already been pulled in Australia and Canada. And... Uh, possibly also South Korea. So, um, and when that goes, of course, the banks suddenly find that on their asset side, a large part of their assets valuations reflect the, the price of assets. And when the price of assets starts to fall, their assets fall, they, their liabilities remain the same. So their equity falls, and that's when they become vulnerable. When their equity goes down, their debt stores negative, they're bankrupt. And that's the uh, that's the probable dynamic we'll see. So I do expect. Uh, before government intervention gets in, gets in the way and tries to rescue the banks, uh, as the Australians always do, uh, one of those banks at least is going to start looking very shaky. Right, and those people who've got money in those banks, what happens to them? Well, they should they should be protected by the deposit guarantee. But again, this is where uh, we've had this mad argument that uh, that you should be sharing a risk is a deposit you should share in the risk of the bloody bank you're depositing in. So that's capped at a hundred thousand dollars in the Australian case. So anybody with an account, any account with more than $100,000 in it may be told we're not going not to back you up. Now, of course, that happens. Those people are going to be the very first ones to try to take their money out of the banks, possibly move the money offshore, and then you're going to have a, a, a capital uh, a, account crisis as well. So happy days, basically. Yeah, well, I mean, if you've got more than 100000 you would know that uh, currently, and you'd be thinking, well, it's not worth having this money sticking around. I need to buy assets, which is obviously contributing to the problem. Yeah, yeah, and or, or get your money offshore. And uh, with, you know, flexible exchange rates and, 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 uh, and the, and the uh, free movement of capital-type ideas that are built into the Australian financial system and many others, then that money will be going offshore at a pretty rapid rate. Right. And I think we're not supposed to give financial advice. Uh, you should uh, see an advisor uh, rather than listening to us. But, it, I mean, it sounds to me, though, like if you've got that money and it's sitting in an Australian bank, get it the hell out of there. Yeah, well, that's, again, the danger. And then that's why you can get a run on banks and, and credit crunch effects like that. People will make those sorts of decisions. And then that, of course, makes the banks even more vulnerable. So, because the extent to which banks in Australia and Canada and South Korea, unfortunately, now also leave it up towards household prices. Uh, you know, it's, it's a winning bet on the way up and, a, and it's, a, it's a disaster on the way down. And they've set themselves up for it. And they're also relying, of course, largely upon Chinese buying to continue when there's the Chinese themselves are now seeing a huge capital outflow and they're starting to clamp down on, on their capital outflow. So there's, you know, not one, not two, but three ways that the money supply could be crunched in each of those economies, uh, initially leading to house price declines, but then leading to an economic to um, 
the economic uh, activity plunging, and of course then the banks being vulnerable to the type of you know, Lerman Brother moment we saw back in America in 2008. Now that you've uh, you've been saying that house prices in in Australia are going to take a plunge for a long time, and uh, I think you've been surprised that they haven't. So why have they survived, and why is that not going to continue? Well, the causal factor behind it, I mean, I, I'd be surprised if my causal factor would end up being wrong. And in fact, when, I mean, the causal factor is always the change in mortgage credit. So, um, and they'll have to go through the argument step by step. Uh, people talk about demand and supply when they try to explain house prices and then focus entirely on supply and explain it all as basically driven by population. Yep. People don't buy houses. Mortgages buys how, buy houses. People with mortgages buy houses. So the fundamental demand for new housing is the change in mortgage debt, which I call mortgage credit. And that, if you divide that by the price level, you've got a rough measure of how many physical you know, average houses can be bought. Uh, per year at any point in time. So there's a relationship between the, the uh, new new mortgage debt coming onto the market and the level of house prices. Therefore, there's a relationship between the change in mortgage debt, change in mortgage credit, and the change in house prices. And that relationship is held firm in Australia's case. So if you'd followed the data that I've got uh, on uh, on mortgage change in mortgage credit, it would have told you when house prices are likely to rise and when they're likely to fall, and, and it's pretty much followed that pattern since 2008. The real reason that we're the uh, that we haven't had a crisis in Australia is that because the, the government's kept on encouraging people back into mortgage debt again. Mm. First of all, what I nicknamed the first home vendors boost back in 2008, where they doubled and tripled the amount of money they gave to new buyers to encourage them to take up mortgages, and then by the RBA cutting rates when the China bubble turned out to be not as big and as permanent as they thought it was going to be. So they um, they cut rates in the hope it would cause investors to come into the market and drive, and drive up house prices and house building activity, which it duly did. But all this stuff is, is, is caused by an increase in the level of mortgage credit. Now that's driven us from mortgage debt being, I think something like about, uh, house, say household debt in total in Australia being something like about 90% of GDP at the time of the financial crisis to 120-something percent now. Yeah. So it's, it's that's why house prices haven't fallen. We've lifted them up higher. And, of course, it's even, you know, promoted as this is this is, this is is good because it's helping our GDP. GDP is growing because people are putting more money into housing and uh, more houses are being yeah. built. Yeah, yeah, and we're, going, we're trying to get rich for selling second-hand houses to each other. And the trouble is this, this is – Australia's just extended the same failed policy that other countries have done for longer by government policy encouraging that, that level of debt. So it's just got worse and worse. So, and, let's, uh, so the situation, one of those banks collapses. So we have, rather than having the big four, we have the big three in Australia. And I guess the, uh, the obvious ones that are going to go or the obvious one that's going to go is the one that's, uh, that's most exposed to, to, to housing debt. But um, – and I guess beyond that, I mean, there's going to be less – money being swilling around in investments in properties. So even on an ongoing basis, it's going to be difficult to sustain uh, for banks um, because, you know, there's there's just less demand. What's the next step then? Because if you've got all those people who've got more than $100,000 uh, deposited in their bank, they're going to lose a chunk of that money as well. So you've got uh, two things there impacting on the economy, haven't you? One, you've got less money that's swilling around because people haven't got that money because it's just been taken off them. Uh, and then people also feeling less well off because uh, their house uh, crashed in value. Well, I think the government will reverse a lot of those policies when, when, when the uh, crisis actually hits. So they, they, they won't 
they'll probably they'll probably increase the limit on deposits from a hundred thousand to five hundred thousand, and they'll they'll work out ways not to impose it on those above the five hundred thousand anyway, and they'll try to rescue one of the banks uh, when it starts going under. But the odds are they'll look at the books and think, well, we've simply got to two or two of these amalgamates, so you might get national amalgamating with ANZ, something of that nature. Right, but the um, government's but the government's going to have to pay that money out as well, isn't it? Because there's going to be a lot of people. Yeah. And the um, government, therefore, government spending goes through the roof, which is what happened back in America. You had the deficit in under um, under Bush uh, went from five percent to fifteen percent as Obama came into office. It was just a continuation of the, of the two because it, it happened in a political change of it. It was is still happening uh, by the forces of the decline in the, the private sector to begin with. Um, so we'll see a similar thing in Australia, huge government deficit, and that spending will attenuate the impact of the downturn, but it won't stop it. Right, but but that's the best way forward, isn't it? I mean, that's uh, I mean at least that's protecting uh, the money in people's pockets. I mean, the, the high government debt is uh, it, it is not a short term issue. Um, it, it, is there much lost in that process? No, there wouldn't be much loss if we realised that the real thing we've got to do is get that level of private debt down. But of course, that won't happen. So I can see I can see the economy tanking because of the decline in house prices, because of the decline in mortgage credit, um, causing a, a huge downturn. Government, both courtesy of just reduced tax takes and increased unemployment benefits, going into a deficit throwing extra oil in there anyway because the, the last thing a politician wants to be is in charge when there's a recession. Uh, and that giving you a, a stimulus to the economy, countervailing to some extent the downturn, but then it'll leave us, leave, leave all these countries, Australia, Canada, South Korea and so on, with an enormous level of private debt and therefore credit demand is going to be zilch in the future and we'll all turn Japanese, which has been my expression for 15 years now. Right, you think we're going to turn Japanese, turning Japanese, you really think so. Uh, <laughs> in the words of the song. So, And a whole load of people obviously uh, in debt and negatively geared. Yeah, yeah, and then that's that's going to be their real problem because negative gearing only works if you expect house prices to rise. Yeah. Now, if the house price rise falls out, then they're the ones who are first going to try to bail out, and of course their financial strategy is out the window. So that can mean an increase in government spending on pensions. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah, it's it's looking pretty sick, isn't it? And, and, and they, those people, are in effect, you I mean they have negative equity, and they probably are going to be in a position where even if they sell, you know, if they've got investment properties, even if they sell them, I wonder whether it's going to be enough to uh, cover their liabilities, and they could find themselves going bankrupt. Well, this is the. I mean, there's still a large number of Americans who are in that situation. House prices in America have recovered substantially from the. Uh, total, uh, the Nadi they reached in the aftermath of the crisis. Uh, and that's partly, again, driven by the whole dynamics of mortgage debt yet again. But there are still plenty of Americans in negative equity who can't afford to leave their houses, can't afford to sell them. So they're servicing it on the basis of just having uh, most of their income going to paying uh, the, the, the interest on their debt. But if they, if they ever liquidated the property and tried to to sell it to get out, then they'd end up with a debt and no and no property. So I think we're going to find a lot of Australians in that situation. Hence your idea. And, hence, hence your idea of a debt jubilee. So we just so the government just says right, everyone's bank account. We're going to look at what the average amount of debt is uh, in everyone's bank account. We're just going to give you a slug of money, including those who weren't in debt in the first yeah, place. Yeah, yeah. So the savers bank a disadvantage. They can, yeah, I think they, that's, they're that's, the ones who can go and buy all the cheap houses. They should have. You know, that's it's that, yeah. now it's their chance. Exactly. Exactly. Now that's the, that's that's a feasible way out. But whether it will actually happen, I mean, again, um, we 
we a capacity not to see what caused the problem is just breathtaking because of a bad analysis of how the economy operates it's it's like we're a bunch of astronomers trying to trying to hit the moon and that we believe that we rather fly a rocket to mars we believe mars orbits the earth rather than the sun we ain't going to hit it and unfortunately i don't expect that policy to be implemented not even tested so we'll be stuck in the stagnationist aftermath and then the only way out of that is what the Japanese have been doing, which is large amounts of government spending. But there'll always be a political party saying, oh, we can balance the books. And then you're caught in this you know, merry-go-round between a slight recovery because of an increase in government spending, still a huge overhang of private debt, therefore no credit growth. Uh, therefore, when the government decides to balance its books again, credit growth goes negative once more and bang, you go back into a slump. And this, Japan's been playing this rinse and repeat game now for 25 years. So I've got immense confidence in the capacity of uh, things like the Australian government uh, and the South Korean government to repeat exactly the same process. All right. So we started this talking about how do you protect yourself from a crash? And you've, you, you've mentioned the countries where you think it's going to happen. I guess the answer is if you are steeped in debt with a lot of housing, now's the time to start offloading some of it. Yeah, it'd be great to get out now. I mean, the, the way to protect yourself from a crisis like that is to get out first. <laughs> it, it doesn't do it. it actually, that, that, that is an individual behaviour which causes the systemic uh, process you're trying to avoid. You start dumping properties in the market. That's part, part of the people who actually start doing that are the, are the ones who precipitate the turnaround in the, in the price dynamics. Uh, but, of course, if you do it first, you're out. So you can, you can watch other people go down. And my favourite example there, actually, is to, not in housing at all, but textiles. There's a, a American billionaire family called the Levies, and the, the, one of the uh, uh, great-great-grandfather or the great-grandfather was a, a textile uh, a clothing manufacturer, and he was engineer-trained. And in doing his engineering, he then went look back and looked at the cycles that in, in the prices he was paying for textiles over time and saw a, 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 a second-order damped cycle that looked just like what he saw in, in electrical circuits uh, at the time, back in the uh, early 1920s. And... Uh, when the tech store came to him saying, well, prices are booming, you better buy or you miss out. How much do you want to buy? He said none. And the rep was just completely stunned. But if you don't, you don't buy, it'll be more expensive next week. He said, I'm buying none. And basically sat on the family money. The cycle then went into a huge slump as he expected. A lot of his competitors went bankrupt and he bought them up. Mm. And that's then he then uh, funded what's called the Levy Foundation uh, to promote the work of Mikhail Kolesky, ultimately, who was a, um, a Polish engineer turned economist who had the same sort of vision of cycles. And they finally housed both Hyman Minsky and Wynne Godley in their final years. And this is the Levy Institute up in, in Bard College in upstate New York. So there's a case where somebody getting out of the market when the prices were rising because he believed a turnaround was coming profited immensely by buying the. The, um, the detritus of the crash afterwards. Right. So that's what you do. Quick, final question. This is not new. We've seen it time and time again in different places around the world. The same recipe. We have bodies like the International Monetary Fund. We've got uh, banking, global banking regulation. Why is none of that working? Why does the same thing keep on happening? Why are the same mistakes repeated? Why isn't there some sort of global global regulation which prevents banks from behaving like this? Partly because they've all been trained in neoclassical economics right. and they believe in myth and they've been given the responsibility to manage the real world. <laughs> 
world. Uh, th this is the real problem. If you have a mythical, if you have this, the experts following a mythical view of how the world operates and you put them in charge of managing the real world, they'll stuff up. Mm. And uh, Despite it, how, it, despite how much it. evidence they are presented with. Yeah, exactly. They just simply don't see the evidence. It's it's a, it's a classic case of you know if you ever tried guest or glasses on where they where the glasses invert your view of the world. And after all, your mind flips over and everything is upside down. Is is the right way around and vice versa. Uh, they're wearing guest or glasses. They can't see the real world properly, and it's it's just impossible really in the long run for them to to actually admit, my God, my framework is wrong. Uh, they'll continue imposing it. So. This is a great trouble. Following a myth leads you into disaster. Yeah, there we are. Well, there's a thought to finish with. Are you actually seeing the world upside down? How, do, we, how would we know? How, maybe we are. Yeah. <laughs> Good to talk, Steve. Uh, the timescale on all of this. Next year, this year, when does when do countries like, well, let's look at Australia because that's what the country we know well. Does it all start to unfold this year? I think the credits thing definitely starts unfolding this year. Uh, I've had people argue to me that there's a large amount of, of monetary stimulus coming in through export uh, growth with a whole range of new export projects coming in, not through the prices, but through the sheer increase in volume. So there is a potential counter countervailing force there. Uh, but I think on the on the domestic credit side, the wheels fall off this year. Um, certainly by the end of the year, it should be extremely obvious. Uh, and the same thing in Canada and in South Korea. Uh, Belgium may be even uh, waiting until 2019, uh, or 2000, 2018, pardon me. But I think the next two years, definitely most of those 9 to 17 countries I've, I've identified should have a crunch within the next two years. Gee, there's a good book in all of this, isn't there? Oh, you've written one. There is. Yeah, indeed. Coming out in March, April, March, April, May. <laughs> I look forward to that. Uh, talk again soon. Thanks, Steve. Okay, mate. Bye. And, of course, we will talk about that book in future editions of the Debunking Economics podcast. Another edition of the podcast again soon. Thanks very much for subscribing and thanks for listening. I'm Phil Dobby. We'll catch you again soon. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. If you've enjoyed listening to Debunking Economics, uh, even if you haven't, you might also enjoy The Y Curve. Each week, Roger Hearing and I talk to a guest about a topic that is very much in the news that week. It's lively, it's fun, it's informative. What more could you want? So search The Y Curve in your favourite podcast app or go to ycurve.com to listen.